Thank you, Christine. December 24th, 1914. World War I had been going on for five months. British soldiers were tending their wounds in catching their breath after an entire day of trench warfare. As the fighting stopped earlier in the night, the melody of carols were sweeping over no man's land from the German to the British side. As curious eyes peered over the trench, fir trees and lanterns lit up the night. And officers from both the British and the German army met in no man's land and called what became known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. The next morning, soldiers that were previously enemies trying to kill each other were kicking around a soccer ball, taking pictures and exchanging autographs. Does this story strike you as real or not real? See, there were many that heard this story and didn't believe it. It was too outrageous for them to believe because it didn't happen over the whole battlefield. Not all of Britain and France called a truce with all of Germany. So they figured it's just a myth that turned into propaganda. But this really happened. We have photographs and we have eyewitness testimony and we have autographs that people kept and brought back from British soldiers or from German soldiers. So, even though we have eyewitness testimony and photographs and all this other evidence, people still didn't believe that it happened. Why? It's too unbelievable that enemies could stop fighting even for a day. And we understand this. In our day, a verbal disagreement with somebody else is seen as an attack on their identity and their humanity. In our culture, enemies abound with anyone who disagrees with us and biblical love is scarce. We wonder if anything can be done to mend these tenuous times. But it's not just out in the culture out there. We have our own personal enemies. We have our, those who've sinned against us. And we can't even imagine reconciling with them. Well, Jesus has the vaccine that we need against hatred in our polarized society. And it's found on the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't have a lot of time to get into the context here. But the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus officially beginning his teaching ministry. He had already been going out and healing people, as we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23, to the first verses of chapter 5. We see that his fame spread, and they all brought their sick and diseased and paralyzed and demon-possessed to him, and he healed them, and he cast out demons. And because of this, as we would today, great crowds followed him. And Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up 
on a mountain. And people drew to him. His disciples drew to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, his disciples, the ones who came to him. And he taught them in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And it's important to note, as we study this passage, the context of his teaching, what Jesus is about to say isn't directed to random people or crowds. It's directed to his disciples, to his followers. Look again in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to them. He opened his mouth and taught them. When the, he saw the crowds, he withdrew to the mountain and he taught his disciples. Whatever Jesus is about to say in this sermon, he's about to say to those who are already following him and obeying him. So what is he teaching them about? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. And this is reinforced again in the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus was teaching his followers about life in the kingdom of heaven. Those who want to be a part of my kingdom, Jesus says, here's how you live. Live like this. Church, if you want to follow Jesus, we're called to live according to these words that Jesus speaks to us. And we're going to zoom in on one particular teaching today, loving your enemies. Look with me again at chapter 5 of Matthew, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Today, as we examine this passage, we're going to be looking at three things, because I'm a good Baptist. The proposition of loving enemies the objection or objections to loving enemies, and the motivation to loving enemies. But first, the proposition. What is Jesus telling us to do? What is he commanding us? So you see in verse 43, Jesus loved the Old Testament. He says, you have heard it said, and he quotes the Old Testament. It was important to him. And while we don't have time, earlier in the sermon, he says, I love the word of God. And I am not here to undermine anything that's in the Old Testament. I'm here to further it. I'm here to complete and fulfill the Old Testament. He doesn't see himself as abolishing the Old Testament or unhitching from it. And he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus uses this formula throughout this first part of the Sermon on the Mount thus far. You have heard it said, 
reciting an Old Testament command and that interpretation of that command, but I say to you, and the command that Jesus gives. So what command is he referencing here? Everyone here's favorite Old Testament book, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's clear that this law Jesus references is in Leviticus. But the other piece, and hate your enemy, that's nowhere in this particular verse that he's quoting, right? And it's not easily traceable. We don't know if it's just the popular saying and interpretation of the day, or if it's traced back to a document. And some people make, uh, <clears throat> they perceive that some things come, but we're not really sure. But whatever it is, we can understand how this might be a natural misunderstanding, a misunderstanding in light of the rest of the Old Testament. But Jesus contradicts and undermines this popular understanding and turns it on his head. And here is the proposition or command that Jesus gives in his part of the sermon. But I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus doesn't say hate your enemies as some of the day did. He doesn't say tolerate them. He doesn't even say ignore them. He says love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this positive treatment of, ev- of enemies isn't actually a totally new concept from the Old Testament. We can see in Exodus 23, um, the Lord commands, if you see your enemy's ox or donkey, you return it to them. And if you see it fallen in a ditch, you go and bring it to him. So we see that we're supposed to treat our enemies well and even go out of our way for our enemies to bring their possessions back to them. So we have to rescue it. 25, 21 says, Feed your enemy if he's hungry. Give him a drink if he's thirsty. Proverbs 24, 17 to 18 says, Don't rejoice when bad things happen to your enemy. And even Job says, If he should be punished, if he rejoiced at an enemy's misfortune in Job chapter 31. So this isn't a totally foreign concept, but Jesus goes farther than these commands and commands followers of the kingdom to love and pray for their enemies. So it seems important if we're going to follow this command, what does he mean by love? What does it mean to love your enemy? We don't have a lot of time, but let's take a quick survey of of Scripture and see what love is biblically. And I think the most stark and helpful example for our purposes this morning is to look at Hosea. Those of you who are in Sunday school, light up, because we just studied this story. But if you're unfamiliar with this story or that era of the Bible, you could come to Sunday school. You would have known, right? This is in the divided kingdoms, preaching to Uh, unfaithful kings as the captivity is coming, and we'd love to have you. But nevertheless, God speaks to Hosea, and he commands him, go marry a woman who is adulterous and will cheat on you. He obeys the Lord. 
he marries her and has three children with her. Then, after they have children together, she leaves him, she leaves her children, and she goes and lives an adulterous lifestyle. And she's unfaithful, going after these lovers, and they allow her to borrow money to live a lavish and adulterous lifestyle. And it happens so much that they enslave her because of her debts to them. After Gomer has left Hosea and their children, God speaks to Hosea again. What does God say to him? Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods in the love cakes of raisins. Now, Hosea hears his command and he obeys the Lord. He seeks out Gomer. He pays off her debts and he brings her back home as his wife. And the word that the Lord uses to command Hosea is love. What an incredible, beautiful example of love. And this kind of love that Hosea is to do is to represent the way the Lord loves His people, whom He married via a covenant on Mount Sinai and set His love on them. Deuteronomy 10.15 Israel committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. Yet He promises to rescue them despite their rebellion. So, we don't have a lot of time, but let's make a few observations about love in light of this passage. One, it's marked by decision and not merely emotion. Love is marked by decision and not emotion. The Lord set His love on Israel and will be faithful because He made a promise. He made a choice. He made a decision to love them. Gomer and Israel's rebellion doesn't invalidate Hosea or Gomer's love. He said, well, you blew your side of the contract, so now I don't have to love you anymore. That's not how they see it. They made a decision, and they will continue to love even when the other party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. Now, love is absolutely accompanied by emotions. When I tell you to love your spouse. I'm not saying be cold and distant toward them and just say, well, I made a decision a few years ago and I guess I'm stuck with you. That's not what I mean. Love is absolutely accompanied by emotions, but it transcends temporary feelings. The foundation of love is decision. It is not emotion. Number one, love is marked by decision. Number two, it is marked by active self-sacrifice and not self-gratification. If love is only about what someone else does for you, it's not biblical love. Writing about biblical love, Paul writes in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Count others 
more significance than yourself. Is there a, a better picture than At great cost to himself, he had to pay 15 shekels of silver and what amounts to 430 pounds of bread. He, at great cost to himself, pursues his whoring wife, pays her lavish debts, and brings her home. Hosea would probably be the ridicule of his neighbors. But he counts the cost of ridicule, of finances, of personal shame, maybe. And he decides it's worth it. Why? Because it reflects the love of the Lord. Love is not cheap. Love will cost you something. If it isn't willing to sacrifice, it's not love. Love is willing to sacrifice oneself for the sake of another. Love's marked by decision. Love's marked by self-sacrifice. And it's marked by biblical truth and not comfortable tolerance. Hosea doesn't say to Gomer, well, if this is how you identify yourself, and this is you're living your best life now, and this is your truth, go for it. Hosea doesn't say that. He says to her in Hosea 3.3, he, and rebukes her. He says, you shall not play the whore, but you shall not take other lovers, and you shall come home and be um, marked with me, and I will be that for you. See, Gomer believes the lie that happiness is to be found in casual sexual encounters and a lavish lifestyle. And what happened to her? Those lovers who were supposed to fulfill her didn't care about her at all. They used her, abused her, and literally enslaved her. Our culture says to truly love someone means to affirm everything they believe and allow them and support them to do whatever they deem right. That's not biblical love. Love values truth more than comfort. Love values truth more than comfort. Why? Because insofar as someone lives in accordance with the truth, the more fulfilled they will be. Because they're in more in line with reality of God's world and God's word. Looking at an example, when Adam and Eve believed the lies of Satan in the garden, what happened? Not much. They experienced shame, guilt, death, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with their spouse, broken relationship with the world, and death. So, not a big deal. No. Lives destroy lives. We know this. Lies destroy lives, but the truth will set them free. Love is willing to stand up for the truth because it desires the highest good for someone else. And fighting for the highest good of someone might mean rebuke. It might mean standing in their way. In summary, love is a decision accompanied by emotions that desire the highest good of another person, which results in actions of self-sacrifice. That's a difficult task. Can we agree to that? 
Those of you who are married or in a relationship, can you say that that is always you? I don't live up to this with my own children or my own wife. I'm constantly seeking my own way and my own good. Constantly not valuing them as highly as I value myself. Constantly connecting how I treat them to how they make me feel. But Jesus commands his followers to be this way, not just towards their spouses. Jesus commands us to be this way towards our enemies. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't encourage it. He doesn't say, this would be good if you did this. He commands it. It is an imperative. As Vin Diesel in The Pacifier would say, it's my way or the highway. Or that we're going to do this my way. No highway option. Of course, I would butcher Vin Diesel. But at least I butcher the pacifier and not the Bible, right? Maybe that remains to be seen. The passage before us, this passage, is about not retaliating to enemies. When they strike you, turn the other cheek. That famous passage. So not only are we to negatively not respond to our enemies when they attack us, it goes further than that. We are to positively love and seek after their good. To seek the good of those who seek our harm. That's the proposition Christ puts before us. Love your enemies. This proposition means this. You don't get to decide who you love anymore. You don't get to decide who is worthy to be treated well with love and who does not. You are not God. And God has created every person in His image. And we are not at liberty to say, well, you identify as transgender, I don't have to love you. Or, you have hurt me in the past, I don't have to love you. Or, fill in the blank, there is no one that we are able to say, I don't have to love them. Jesus redefines what neighbor means and extends it to the nth degree. There is no clause that you don't have to love. It is my way or else. No high. This proposition means that as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, you love who God loves. So we see the proposition of loving enemies. Now let's look at some objections. You're all silent right now. But you're really loud in my head. I hear your objections in my mind. And those objections came to my mind when I was studying this as well. One might be, doesn't this mean we just allow evil people to get away with everything? Not at all. This is to confuse love with being nice. Please hear that. Love is not being nice. Tolerance and niceness allows people to do whatever they want, not love. Proverbs 19 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. The CSB says, don't set your heart on being the cause of their death. If someone's walking off a cliff and you say, hey, there's a cliff there. If you go over it, you're going to die. And they say, no, I'm not. I don't care. 
Does love say, cool, you do you, man? Or does love tackle that person? If they say, I don't care, love desires the best for others. And sometimes that means standing up to them and for the truth, for their highest good. Now, this doesn't mean you can force someone to choose the good. You can't. I can't. It does mean you shouldn't be a willing party to their death. You do get to decide how you interact with them. Love does not allow someone to walk off a cliff. Love has the courage to stand up to them and fight for the highest good of another. And we see this in Jesus and how he treats his enemies. Jesus often rebuked the Pharisees. Why? Matthew 23 allows us to read into this some in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither allow enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus can flip tables and chase people out of the temple because it leads others astray. He loved his father enough to hate the desecration of his temple. We want the highest good for our enemies. And so we point them to the truth and stop them from evil when it hurts others. Another objection that comes to my mind is what implications does this have on war or military? Because we're supposed to love our enemies? Does this mean we shouldn't have fought Nazis? Is that really your position, Derek? We should have just done nothing and allowed them to just take over in the name of loving our enemies? Well, let's take that objection seriously. Let's look at the example of David. David had a personal enemy, and his name was Saul. Saul was actively trying to kill David, even though David bore no ill will towards him. And one day, Saul famously goes into a cave to relieve himself, apart from his armies, where David is behind him. And all of his people say, you can get him, you can kill him. The Lord has given him into your hands. And he doesn't do that. He cuts off a piece of his robe. And when Saul goes out, David is convicted that he tore off a piece of his robe. And David goes to apologize to the guy trying to kill him. Wow. Yet, David did fight the Philistines. And he killed many people. So what's the difference? Was David disobeying this command? So first of all, David sought the Lord and prayed whether he should go into battle. And that's evidence in 2 Samuel 5.19. And he had a command from the Lord to destroy the evil people inhabiting Canaan. So here's the difference. The first, only David's life is at stake. So he can love his enemies. When there are others' lives at stake and the others are being harmed, he can step in. Again, how did Jesus love his enemies? When his enemies wanted to kill him, he laid down his life. And he willingly went to the cross. But he did not allow enemies to harm other people. He stood up for them. He stood up for the widow. He stood up for the adulterous woman when they were throwing stones. 
He stood up for the harlot. He stood up for those who were sick. Sometimes love wanting the best for others, the most evil or the most loving thing you can do is oppose them and not allow them to commit evil. Now we need wisdom to know the difference, when to speak the truth and allow them to face the consequences of their sin and when to step in and oppose them. But God gives wisdom to those who asks. Another objection, isn't loving your enemies a waste? Isn't it harmful to yourself? This is very true. Loving your enemies is not a plan investors are going to jump on. Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank is screaming, Where's my return on my investment? How am I going to get my money back? If you have this objection, Jesus foresaw the same objection. Look back into chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Jesus says, if you love those who love you, there's no reward. If your policy is, you're nice to me, then I'll be nice to you. And if you cross me, I will be your enemy forever. Congratulations. You have the same ethical rationale as Hitler, Stalin, and every other dictator. Dictators love those who treat them well. And Jesus says this of tax collectors, who the Jews saw as the most morally repugnant people on the face of the planet. They would sell out their own people to be loved by the Romans, the Romans who were killing their people just because they would do some good for them. They love those who love them. This is to fundamentally understand what love is. It's not about you at all. Love is self-sacrificial. It doesn't regard the cost as too much. Love means counting others as more important than yourself. Saying it is naive and harmful to me, that's not love, that's selfishness. So we've seen the proposition or the command to love enemies. And we've looked at objections to love enemies. And Jesus says in answering this objection in Matthew 5.46, what reward do you have? Jesus calls us to love our enemies as if there's reward in it. Well, what reward is Jesus talking about? Let's back up and see the motivation for loving enemies. As we delve into this passage, we see the proposition of Jesus is a tall task. We also see objections to loving enemies fall flat. So who cares? Sure, I'm supposed to love my enemies. Why? Who cares? Jesus answers this motivation. Look back again in chapter 5, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why should we do this? Because when we do, we reflect the very character of God. R.T. France in his commentary says, At this point, Jesus plays his strongest ethical card. To love those who love you is not offered as a piece of pragmatic wisdom, but as a reflection of the character of God himself. Rain is essential to life in the ancient world. If there's no rain, 
There's no crops and you starve. God shows this love both to those who love him and obey him and those who hate him and rebel against him. But the passage doesn't even end there. Look with me in verse 48. You, speaking to those who would obey Jesus and be in his kingdom, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As followers of Jesus, that's our command. Not only to love our enemies, but to do it perfectly and to do everything else that the Torah commands us. This is what we're called to do. And we might say, that is ridiculous. Do you even understand what you're asking? Perfection? Why do I have to make the first move when that coworker abuses me? Why do I have to love someone who doesn't love me? That's not fair. Why do I have to suffer when they treat me like dirt and they get all these good things? Beloved, hear me. You will never make the first move. Ever. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We often wonder why good things happen to evil people around us when we don't get good things. Well, the reality is, from God's eyes, we're all evil. All of us. We paint ourselves as the hero in our stories and paint those who sin against us or harm us or ridicule us as the villain, but we're all bad guys. We're prone to forget that those of us who follow Jesus, we were once God's enemies, Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The ones who crucified Jesus used the very breath the Spirit of God breathes into their lungs to curse Him. Hearts that were sustained by the Father were beating in hatred toward the Son of God while He was dying for them. Yet, the breath of Jesus on the cross breathed forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing and his heart considered them, the people killing and mocking him, as more important than creator God. The perfect, sinless Son of God decided voluntarily to make the decision to be treated like an enemy of God so that you and I could be treated like sons and daughters of God. He did that for you while you hated him, while you were his enemy, while you were a sinner. In light of this, we realize, backing up 
Jesus began to preach this sermon to his followers and make such straight demands of them, he already had been healing them. He already had been healing diseases, pains, demon possession, and paralyzed. Dale Allison comments on this and says, Before the crowds hear the Messiah's word, they are the object of his compassion and healing. Before, having done nothing, nothing at all, they are benefited. So grace comes before task, succor before command, healing before imperative. The first act of the Messiah is not the imposition of his commandments, but the giving of himself. Today's command presupposes yesterday's gift. He can give this command because he lived up to it. He was perfect. And he has bought you with his own shed blood. Today's command presupposes yesterday's gift. So we've seen Jesus' proposition to love our enemies, some objections to loving our enemies, and the motivation to love our enemies, being like God. Christ is worthy for us to live out this command. Amen? So how do we do that? Quickly. What doctrines or ideas do we need to correct for us to love our enemies? What headspace do we need to think about before we do this? Number one, we fight spiritual battles, not fleshly ones. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not wrestle against human beings, beloved. We fight the spiritual battle of the evil that has deceived and enslaved them. And we attempt to rescue them by the power of the Holy Spirit from that spiritual evil they participate in. But if you don't believe that the spiritual realm exists, if you don't believe that God is real, then sure, you don't have any reason to love your enemies. But if the Bible is true then recognizing that our true enemy is not the people harming us, we can love our enemies. Two, we know that God is holy and he will not leave evil unpunished. If we realize God is real and will punish evil on judgment day, it frees us to not have to enact that punishment here and now. Every person, including you and me, will be judged by their deeds. That punishment will either fall on Jesus or on them, on you. When we're freed from enacting our own punishments and trust the Lord's goodness to judge evil, we can love our enemies, love those whom he loves. So we have the headspace we need to get in. What heart space do we need to get in? What affections or feelings do we need to develop to love our enemies? Have you ever realized when... When we're hearing these commands, when we're hearing this command from Jesus, our hearts don't say, yeah, I should be doing that. Our first tendency is to say, that's ridiculous. Our first tendency is, no one else is doing that. The first tendency is, I don't have to do that. We look at each other, see no one else doing it, and don't give it a second thought. When Isaiah sees the Lord in all his splendor and glory, 
in Isaiah 6, he responds in this way in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Bob Coughlin said in his sermon on this passage, we don't hear woe is me very much. Because we don't see the king very much. We don't hear woe is me very much because we don't see the king very much. When you look at Jesus and the way he lived his life, it will change your heart. It has radically changed mine. If we look at everyone else, then we have an out. We have an excuse. I don't have to do it because so-and-so didn't. But if we look at Jesus our heart's affections will be stirred to love our enemies because God loved me, his enemy, first. If you want to develop affection and love for others and your enemies, you need to dwell on the beauty of Christ. Read the Gospels. Read his word. Read his commands. And realize you really deserve punishment. I really deserve punishment for the way I've brought hell into this world and revel in the glory of our Savior King? What acts of our will, what hand space do we need to get in to love our enemies? While you were listening, and I talked about enemies, someone popped in your head. Now, most of you probably won't uh, be caught on the battlefield of World War III and have a ceasefire. That probably won't happen to you. Right, But if you were involved in a moment of reconciliation, that moment was so crazy that no one believed you when you told others about it, who would that person be you reconcile with? First, realize God is able to turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He did it with you. He did it with me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Recognize the person is not your ultimate enemy. The evil that has blinded them, that is the enemy. So take the first step today, and whoever that person is, pray for them. As Jesus commands, ask God for good things for them, and God will change your heart. Then reach out to them and see what wonders God will do. Church, we actually have an opportunity to do this in the next few months. We have a membership list full of people that we don't know, that aren't here, and we aren't encouraging or holding accountable. We aren't holding them and desiring the highest good for them. And we have a chance to love them by reaching out and desiring them to be restored to God if it's needed and to our church if it's appropriate. If we don't have enough love in our midst to pursue those who were once a part of our church and are now gone, then not only are we not living up to Jesus' command, we put him to open shame. We are saying, I can't be inconvenienced to check up on someone I used to consider a brother or sister, to check on the soul of someone. And if we can't be bothered to love those who on paper we've called our brothers and sisters, maybe we need to check our hearts. And this is a good opportunity to seek the highest good for others.
Maybe you've listened to me talk about this and you've had feelings of disgust at how ridiculous this is. Maybe you don't believe in God at all. Or maybe you've never thought of yourself as God's enemy. Well, the Bible says we've all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. There's a difference in knowing you've made mistakes and knowing you are an enemy of God in the way you've lived. There's a difference between knowing you haven't loved your enemies and realizing that not loving your enemies has furthered the experience of hell on earth. Those of you who don't think you're God's enemies, what a terrible thing, what a terrible way for you to find out then on judgment day. When the Spirit of God through His Word is telling you right now, you can be saved. Not only are you God's enemy, the bad news, there's good news. He's made a way for you because He loves you. And He will continue to pursue you. But His patience isn't unending. One day we will die. And we will have no more chances. All you need to do is take an honest look at your heart. Agree with God you are his enemy and believe that Jesus was treated as an enemy on your behalf. As we close, Dane Ortland said in his book, Surprised by Jesus, Hell is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside hell and in heaven. Heaven is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside heaven and inside hell. Where do you deserve to be?